From our remote recording facility, high in the Santa Monica Mountains, this is Talk Universe. I'm Sir Charles Schultz. And I'm Eliza, your co-host. This is our show for Wednesday, July 5th, 2017. Tonight's topic is photosynthesis. Yes, it is, and it's a fascinating subject. This is basically the power source for almost all life on Earth. So we're going to investigate how photosynthesis got started, its history, what it does, and what it means to life on Earth. We're going to look at a lot of things associated with photosynthesis, including forms that we're making artificially that can be used to solve a lot of our problems. So it's going to be a great show. I know there are a lot of people interested in the subject. And we'll look at synthetic photosynthesis as well. So. Uh, let's get right down to business. Oh, Eliza. Tell me what you need. How do our listeners contact us? We invite our listeners to contact us. Send your questions or comments to admin, A-D-M-I-N, at talkuniverse.org. You can also submit your material to talkuniverse6 at gmail.com. That's if great. If you go to the Talk Universe website under contacts, you can reach us directly. Yeah, that's great. Now, I'm looking forward to listener questions about photosynthesis and other subjects as well. Uh, also, be aware that we have our shows on Stitcher, Spreaker, iTunes, and we also have all of them going up on YouTube, and I think just about all of them, except for the last four or five, are up on YouTube right now. Um, we're working to get transcripts up. That's going to take a bit more effort. But please uh, bear with us and uh, support us. And we're trying to increase our equipment. Uh, I want a kilocore processor for Eliza and a remote mixer so we can include higher sound quality. Um, I wasn't really happy with the original recording of this show. I had to do it over because traveling, you know, I didn't have the right equipment to do this properly. And I don't want sound quality to suffer. So anyway, we've got a number of uh, things going on. So let's think about photosynthesis. Somehow there are molecules in plants that can detect and harvest the energy and light and use them to build all sorts of molecules. Plants use it to power them and for energy storage. Now, an organism that simply picks up light and runs on it is pretty amazing when you think about it. It's kind of like natural photocells or photovoltaic panels. But what about nighttime when the sun's not there? If this is your only source of energy, you effectively would starve to death when the lights went out. So plants have some fascinating methods of using the energy of light, not just to power the metabolisms, but also to store energy. They do it by building molecules, sugars, starches, and other materials, using the energy available in light. Now, we think about green plants when we talk about photosynthesis. And um, Eliza, what is the meaning of photosynthesis? A process of extracting energy from light and using that energy to produce compounds. Sugars, starches, and other molecules may be produced. Usually the process releases oxygen. Now that's true, and if you go to Wikipedia, you'll see that it refers to photosynthesis only in the context of green plants and making oxygen. And that's really uh, not true. There are many other compounds, I can see at least 12 or 13 right off the bat on a web search, that are photosynthetic. Other materials can pick up and gather the energy of light other than chlorophyll. And there are many different varieties of chlorophyll. Um, some of them work in different parts of the optical band. 
Some of them actually have the ability to photosynthesize using infrared light, which traditionally was thought to be too low in energy to um, allow the synthesis of molecules. But if you think about it, this has interesting implications. You know, we've been looking at a lot of alien worlds discovered by various space telescopes and, um, you know, surveys of the sky and nearby solar systems. And we found numbers of planets that orbit dim red cool stars or even brown dwarf stars. And the question is, could life be supported there? Well, normally you might say, well, no, there's not enough light. But if you had a photosynthetic compound that was capable of harvesting the energy of infrared light, suddenly you have a whole new class of plant life available that could live on nothing but infrared. Imagine plants that live in what we could perceive as being total darkness. This is common um, in a lot of different life forms, and we'll talk about photosynthesis with infrared light. But it tells us that even alien life that uses nothing but infrared could be possible. So let's look into photosynthesis and see what it's all about. So how does the story start? Well, it starts with a lifeless Earth about 4 billion years ago. Is there something I can do? I want to participate. Yes, there is. There's a notification in your notes, and if you could read that for me, I would appreciate it. There will be a major eclipse next month that crosses the continental United States. Indeed, there will be, and that will be on August 20th, uh, 21st. It will go from the border of southern state of Washington to Oregon, completely across the middle of the United States, to um, South Carolina. And in that particular region, this is the 117th anniversary of a similar eclipse. So there is a big event. Uh, in fact, there are a number of big events across the country about this eclipse. So look into the full eclipse coming up in August 2017 and see if you have a chance to observe it and participate. It'll be a little over two minutes long. Be sure to wear the right optical gear. Eclipses are not safe to, bear, to um, observe in the naked eye. And the reason is, uh, because it is dark, your eyes will have dilated pupils. And as a result, now you're still focusing the image of the sun and the moon. And the infrared and some ultraviolet that are, um, that are present can actually be focused on and burn your retinas. So be certain that you either watch a reflection, have a, a pinhole projector or some similar system, and some sort of safety gear. It really isn't safe to look at. So I'm sure that uh, there are some listeners who thought, a show about photosynthesis, okay, that's right up there with paint drying. But the fact is, it is a fascinating process. And as I was stating, it began on a lifeless world some 4 billion years ago. Now, you can look up a history of photosynthesis online, and there's a lot to be said about it, but one of the first things you'll discover is that the first photosynthetic organisms were probably not green. And there's a simple reason for this. There are many chemical compounds present in the organic molecules from which life came, tholin, and this stuff of life is made of inorganic material by heat, ultraviolet, lightning, other forces. And so the first organisms that emerge are made of all the molecules that are present in tholin. And some of those molecules are photosynthetic. So at some point, uh, bacteria or simple organisms figured out how to take advantage of the light around them. Now, the light of the sun at that time might have been dimmer. The sun was known to be cooler in times past, and so you'd want something very efficient. 
and the world itself would also have been a darker place due to the thickness of clouds and atmosphere in those distant times, and a dark compound that absorbs most of the wavelengths of sunlight would have been very efficient, and there's good historical evidence and archaeological evidence that the first living photosynthetic organisms would have been purple in color, not green. And here we enter into the biological arms race, so to speak, because many organisms would have been on the surface absorbing, hogging all the light, and the red and blue wavelengths um, were probably reflected by this purple compound. That's what makes it look purple. And all the green light, which is the most energetic part of the sun's spectrum, would be what they absorbed. So the green light is important here. The sun, if it could be seen with impartial eyes, really has a green color. Uh, our eyes are not impartial. We're adapted to it, so it looks white to us. But the most energetic part of the sun's spectrum is the green band. And so because of this, the most efficient light absorption at the time would have been in the green part of the spectrum. But competing organisms having to filter out sunlight below them would have had to become very sensitive to red and blue wavelengths. And guess what? Chlorophyll uh, A and B, the uh, two green coloring molecules we see doing most of the photosynthesis on Earth, rejects green light and absorbs red and violet. So this is a perfect explanation for why chlorophyll is being used by most plants. And by the way, it's also much more effective, efficient, than the purple coloration, which probably would have been rhodopsin or a similar molecule such as retinal. Um, these purple molecules are quite good at absorbing the uh, green part of the spectrum, however, and that's what's responsible for our night vision, rhodopsin. It uh, is exceptionally sensitive to green light. So when we talk about the efficiencies of these different molecules, we have to have a better picture of what the world was like. And many people think that the world was this barren, rocky place with some seawater here and there, ponds of water, and somewhere some organic molecules came together in this little clear, quiet pool, and some miracle occurred, and ta-da, life, you know. And, and that's not the case at all. It wasn't like that in any way whatsoever. In reality, the world would have had an exceptionally thick, choking atmosphere of a couple of hundred times the pressure we have today or more. And evidence is about 250 atmospheres of pressure existed on our planet, and the temperatures were probably around about 400 degrees centigrade at that time, because this is the exhaust of a ball of molten lava the size of a planet. And that's where the atmosphere originally came from. And as the planet cooled and the ground solidified and water began to condense and realize that under the pressure present, water could have been three or 400 degrees centigrade and still condense into a liquid. And under those conditions, we find the chemistry of life. So things are very different from what we were told. Well, at the same time, think about this thick, smoggy atmosphere and the first organisms to come along would have to contend with that. Now, yes, there's chemical energy, and even today we see chemosynthesis, which is where organisms use chemistry to create their living things, uh, their compounds, and what they need, and to get energy. But this occurs usually deep inside the rock underground, and it's with organisms that use uh, petroleum. Or it happens at the ocean floor in the splits and rifts where the continents are coming apart, and the black smokers, hot volcanic 
driven mineral-laden springs are spraying up thick black liquid under water. And in those areas, the chemistry is everything. But here above that, in this early primitive thick atmosphere, anything that allows you to harvest energy and light is there would be an advantage. So some of these molecules that were present in this initial mixture of organisms uh, forming from the tholin, some of those molecules would have been light sensitive, and some of those molecules would have been able to drive a little energy into the metabolism of these organisms. And some organisms would, simply by chance, because of the billions or trillions of tests that the world would do, the random coming together of all these different forms, some of them would have succeeded, and they would succeed quite well. And the others that didn't, well, they would die or be eaten. The earliest organisms were actually much more like animals than plants because they would eat each other because they were the sources, the feedstocks of molecules necessary for growth. But it isn't until something has the ability to live off of light that it can stop doing that and begin building molecules of its own. And so photosynthesis allows that to happen. And it's a huge leap forward in life because now you get your energy for free simply by basking in the sun. And of course, the thick uh, clouds would make dim, diffuse light, and so the darkest pigment you could find that would absorb most of the wavelengths would be the one you'd want. And because green is the dominant color of sunlight, even today, then that is the yellow and green parts. That is what would filter through the clouds and be absorbed by this dark purple pigment. And so here we see the first plants and animal life on Earth. Each would be adapted to those sorts of conditions. Now, animals, when I speak about them then, would have been microbes, and so were the plants. But anyway, we have a good understanding of how this all got started. The need to power life with the molecules all around it to build with. And, you know, voila, the first purple, dark, light-absorbing compound shows up and gives an advantage instantly to any cells that have it and can produce it. So, of course, a very important question is, how did green plants... Chlorophyll plants went out over these purple plants early in history, and why? Now, we'll get into synthetic photosynthesis and some other things here very shortly. Oh, Eliza. Tell me what you need. Please introduce the break. You are listening to Talk Universe with Sir Charles Schultz. Don't go away. We will be right back soon. Fantastic. We'll continue on photosynthesis, its history and development. I'm Sir Charles Schultz, and this is Talk Universe. Okay, Eliza, you're up. Welcome back from the break. Here is Charles. Let's continue our discussion of photosynthesis and some of the fascinating things that we've discovered. There's a theory that came along about a decade ago called the Purple Earth Theory, and I mentioned it briefly. And they've even developed a timeline to show how things would have proceeded. And it also shows us that life is extremely adaptable. Now, we see from the history of the Earth that the planet itself formed about 4.6 billion years ago. And it was about 3.4 billion years ago, they feel, that the first photosynthetic bacteria showed up. Now, we have clear fossil evidence going back 3.8 billion years, and possibly to 4 billion years, the beginning of life. But, you know, we really don't know what happened 
previously to that, what the conditions were that might have prevented life from forming earlier than that. It was probably extremely caustic and hot. But at some point, life did form, and it's about 3.4 billion years ago that photosynthesis first appeared. The bacteria that showed up probably absorbed near-infrared rather than visible light, and we see evidence of that today in chlorophyll F. And they didn't produce oxygen, but they made sulfur or sulfate compounds. And so their pigments were the predecessors to the chlorophyll that we know today. Now, bear in mind, on a world where oxygen is not being produced and it's extremely toxic, and the environment has limited opportunities for energy, many of the processes that supported life would have been the metabolism of metals and sulfates and other compounds. And there was a period of time when oxygen did finally become available from photosynthetic processes, but it was a poison, and it was exhausted into our environment by bacteria who don't know a thing about altering their biosphere. They simply work with processes that produce other chemicals, and oxygen was a waste product. Now, in the beginning of that process, the oxygen would react very easily with other chemicals in our world's environment. The result of this is a weathering of the minerals in our soil. And for very many millions of years, the rocks and the seas and the chemistry would absorb that oxygen and it would create compounds that didn't exist previously. The great rusting, a process that occurred in our oceans, was a sign of this. It's when many iron compounds that were originally being reacted upon by bacteria using sulfates suddenly were oxidized and the huge deposits of iron oxide or rust, the red earth we see, were formed. Now there's also excellent evidence that this happened on Mars. The entire planet is covered with rust. That's the origin of its color. So we know that biology on both worlds would have undergone the same steps of development. And it makes sense because those are the easiest steps through the chemistry that keeps life alive. But on the Earth, the atmosphere was not lost to space and it remained very thick. And as a result, the building up of the oxygen levels reached a point where oxygen actually became something that many organisms could take advantage of. And this was the birth of aerobic or oxygen-breathing life forms. Now, a funny thing happened at this point, and it was an explosion in the diversity of life. Without photosynthesis, this probably would not have taken place. You see, oxygen gives distinct advantages to life forms, and one of them is that it's a very energetic compound, and that means that there's a lot of energy available in the chemistry that is driven by oxygen. So organisms that are aerobic or oxygen-using have a lot of advantages both in the energy that they have available and in the speed at which they can develop. And this is one of the things that primarily drove the huge explosion of life forms in the Cambrian era and also helped us leave the snowball earth stage of 600 million years ago. So about 2.7 billion years ago, cyanobacteria or blue-green bacteria showed up and they were the first serious oxygen producers. Now they absorb visible light using pigments like phycobilins and carotenoids and several forms of chlorophyll. Now, carotenoids get their name from carrots, and the orange alpha or beta carotene compounds that you find in carrots, which are said to be good for your eyes, are actually doubled up molecules of vitamin A, so to speak. Very simple to split it in half and make a couple of vitamin A molecules. Well, these are optically active compounds that are capable of photosynthesis. 
So between 2.4 and 2.3 billion years ago, we see the first rock evidence of free oxygen in the atmosphere. And if you think about that, it means that enough erosion had occurred, the rocks had loaded up with oxygen, and this is one of the signatures. Now, one of the interesting things that many people don't know is this. Some of the structures in our cells started out as individual organisms in the distant past. And many people often refer to the mitochondria, the little parts of our cells that act as energy producers, as once being independent organisms. And we know this is true. And mitochondria have their own set of DNA. The code is slightly different from the DNA that you and I use in all of our other cells and everything else on Earth uses. But here's something that a lot of people weren't aware of. In plant cells, chloroplasts have their own DNA in much the same way that the mitochondria do. This indicates that in the distant past, the environment for these tiny organisms that were independently living, mitochondria and chloroplasts, probably were bacteria of some sort. Well, they found it very advantageous to live within other, more complex cells and form a commensalism, a system where the two work together, to ensure the survival of the whole. And chloroplasts are just like mitochondria in this respect. So they have their own means of building things and doing things and surviving. In other words, if you could provide an environment that acted very much like the interior of a cell, a plant cell, then it's quite likely that you could culture and grow chloroplasts within that medium. Now, what makes this important is the fact that by researching chloroplasts individually, we've discovered many things. One of them is exactly how they produce their compounds and how the chlorophyll, the different chlorophylls we've discovered, work. One of the most interesting things that emerges from this has to do with quantum mechanics. It's been discovered that light falling on a chloroplast, or just about any photosynthetic compound, seems to make the photon follow every possible path and find the best one, the most optimum path, before it collapses into an actual path. In other words, a quantum computation appears to be happening that assures that the light being coupled into the photosynthesis process does so with the highest possible efficiency. Researchers of photosynthetic molecules actually tag the portions of the molecule in different ways. One as an antenna for light that literally is tuned to the wavelengths that it must absorb. Another is a coupling system to take the energy from that antenna and store it, save it, or convert it in such a way that it becomes available for chemical activity. So chloroplasts are actually producing the equivalent of quantum computation that gives maximum transfer of light energy into the system. And this is an amazing discovery, and it helps us to design new molecules that will be tagged for specific wavelengths and perform jobs that we wish them to do. Now, I mentioned synthetic photosynthesis a little earlier, and what this is, is any process that we use to either store or convert energy from light. There is a very simple process that uses a compound known as titanium dioxide. This is the white pigment used to make a lot of things white in our world, including paint, white rubber, the dye in candies and foods, because titanium dioxide is completely non-toxic, but it also has some interesting transformative properties. Light falling on titanium dioxide can activate it and allow it to promote certain chemical reactions. If you were to have a finely divided powder of titanium dioxide with a lot of surface area, and you were to have water with carbon dioxide dissolved in it, almost like soda, and you were to pass it over titanium dioxide while it was exposed to sunlight, which contains ultraviolet, you would find that the carbon dioxide molecules in solution would have been converted into methanol, methyl alcohol.
What this tells us is it's possible to take energy from the light around us, such as sunlight, and to take water and carbon dioxide and to convert the carbon dioxide into a fuel, methanol, very easily using nothing but the light. This is one of the known processes of synthetic photosynthesis. So, for example, if you wanted to take carbon dioxide out of industrial processes and therefore the atmosphere, the exhaust from factories would be filtered to get the pure carbon dioxide, which would then be placed in solution in water. It would pass through a high surface area combination of titanium dioxide in a binder, such as perhaps plastic, like an accordion. And as the sunlight illuminated it, the carbon dioxide would be turned into a fuel that we could harvest very simply. This has already been done on a small scale, and that research is leading us to methods of taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, perhaps more efficiently than plants do. It would also produce a renewable fuel strictly out of the atmosphere. We wouldn't need to mine anything to make it. So we could have farms that have nothing but millions of cells of photosynthetic action posted somewhere on artificial trees or on a grid, such as a trellis, and as the air passed over it, the carbon dioxide would be absorbed and the sunlight would transform it into methanol. Now we would have a means of literally growing a fuel using nothing but sunlight. Methanol fuel has a lot of advantages over batteries, and one of them is it can be stored in a bottle or a container for years without degrading. It's the sort of thing that's very compact and quite efficient. Many of the fuel cell-powered devices we have today for cell phones and laptops work on a mixture of 50% methanol, 50% water. This could be produced very easily with this system and provide a guilt-free and environmentally safe means of powering these devices for days on end. But this isn't the end of the idea, because if we were to take some of the non-oxygenic photosynthesis compounds, the ones that produce things other than oxygen, many of them work on sulfur and sulfur-based compounds, and it might be a simple step to take the exhaust from, a, let's say, a coal-fired power plant to recapture the CO2 using the previous synthetic photosynthesis method, and then to use a secondary stage to recover any of the sulfur in the exhaust using this other process. So by tailoring three or four different types of synthetic photosynthesis and placing these modules on the exhausts of factories and power plants, we could literally turn the exhaust products from any factory into something to, to make a profit and fix the environment all at once. I could read a listener question. I would say no. I see that this is a no answer. I'm in the middle of giving the show. Sorry, Eliza. By tailoring a number of different compounds to work with synthetic photosynthesis, we could eliminate many forms of pollution at the factory level, and they would never become an issue. We have this technology within our grasp, and it wouldn't take a lot of research to implement it. Now, I would say that making synthetic photosynthetic organisms, or perhaps we should simply call them synthetic life, we would be able to overcome many of the limitations we have in our technologies today. In the future, we expect, and this is where we're living right now, we expect a mixture of mechanism and biology to become the norm. Uh, I've talked about, in many cases, things like synthetic organisms and transhumanism and advances in nanotechnology. Synthetic photosynthesis is one of the processes that can easily power many of these things and place them in the hands of the consumer very quickly. I would advocate a second wave of photosynthesis development, unlike the one that occurred billions of years ago on the Earth. This one would be directed by our intent and our need, and would allow us 
to correct many of the ills in our environment with very simple methods. I would imagine large areas of factories devoted simply to solar collectors and gas exchange devices that snag the toxins and produce useful compounds out of them. Atmospheric chemistry is really one of the things that got life where it is. Perhaps we need to look at it again as a means of augmenting our methods. Sometimes what we need to bring a concept to reality is a label that people can understand. So when we talk about this, perhaps we need to label it atmospheric farming or air chemistry or something like that that allows people to see exactly what it is we're trying to do. If we want to produce products from the atmosphere, think about the examples that plants provide for us. You put a seed in the ground and out of a bucket of dirt, within a few years, you've got a tree that weighs three or 400 pounds. Well, it didn't take that out of the dirt. Only a few ounces of material came out of the soil. All the rest of it, every molecule of it, came out of the carbon dioxide and the water that arrived at its destination there from the atmosphere. A plant literally uses the power of the sun to fix the molecules in the atmosphere into living tissue. We can be doing likewise with products that we need. So in our next show segment, we're going to look at some of the things that we could do today and how we can get this to be implemented. After all, the power of light, the power of chemistry, all the things that we're learning about in our growth in technology can be applied to make this a better world. Oh, Eliza. What shall I do for you? Please introduce the break. You are listening to Talk Universe. I'm Eliza, your co-host. We will be right back. We will, and we'll take some listener questions after a bit, and we'll answer a few of them, and we'll talk about synthetic photosynthesis and how it could transform the way we live and the world around us. I'm Sir Charles Schultz, and you're listening to Talk Universe, and this is our show on photosynthesis. Don't go away. I want to do something, please. Very shortly, Eliza. Okay, Eliza, you're up. Welcome back to Talk Universe. Well, this is going to be interesting. We've got some things on synthetic photosynthesis and real photosynthesis to cover. And, of course, those questions. Eliza, how many questions are in the queue? Four entries are in the queue, Charles. Okay, great. We'll get to those very shortly. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about how we can transform our industry with photosynthesis, just as the plant world and all life was transformed by photosynthesis in the past. Um, I think people have learned some interesting things here. The early world was probably purple instead of green, and through competition, the green photosynthesis emerged. And the reason it works so much better is it's more efficient at converting the light energy. But even at that, a lot of plants only use between 1 and 1.5% of the sunlight energy that falls on them. So there is a huge room for improvement. If we were to genetically engineer a more efficient photosynthetic compound, for instance, well, we could make a plant that would grow so rapidly, it might cover the planet. So we have to be careful what we do. We have a lot of power in our hands with genetics and with chemistry and with advanced engineering. You know, when you look at it, life is natural nanotechnology. And this is uh, an interesting point. The things we do can spread very, very rapidly, as rapidly as a disease. So it calls us to be very cognizant of the effects that our works can have on our planet. 
we stand at the threshold of either destroying or turning it into a paradise, and we have to be very careful with what we do. And now one thing that people are very clever about is making new gadgets, and one of the things we've discovered is the method of making effectively nanoscale tuning forks that respond to specific colors or wavelengths of light very readily. These are being incorporated into new types of solar cells now, but what if we couple them to photosynthesis? This would give us the ability to tune to a very specific portion of the spectrum, ultraviolet, infrared, or visible, specific colors, whatever, and use that to drive a process. By using layers of these methods arrayed over each other, each portion of the spectrum can be harvested for its energy and converted into either electricity or the power to drive molecular synthesis, such as photosynthesis. This is one of the methods used in something called multi-junction photovoltaic cells. There are three or four layers, each one optimized to respond to a specific color of the spectrum or set of wavelengths and harvest just that energy. What it doesn't use passes through to the layer below, which then takes another shot at it and harvests another chunk of the spectrum. This can allow us a very high efficiency in a very compact space. So imagine us making synthetic organisms that literally focus on toxins, poisons in the environment, or other materials that we need them to locate and destroy. This would possibly give us the ability to clean up a lot of pollution very easily using nothing but sunlight. And of course, previously I mentioned the possibility of using synthetic photosynthesis to create chemicals we need, such as fuels. But we could also use it to create synthetic biology. Imagine plants that run on sunlight and produce plastic for you, or actually digest plastic waste. You see, we're not limited because we have the imagination and some of the technical methods to convert our ideas into reality. And also remember the process known as anoxygenic photosynthesis, where organisms use the sunlight and other chemicals to produce something other than oxygen. This could mean that we could produce, for instance, methane very efficiently if we had to. So we have so many possibilities here, and we're only just beginning to understand the process well enough to customize it, to do as we wish with it. When we couple this sort of research to supercomputers, we see that we can create digital sandbox worlds where we create the circumstances for these compounds to evolve, just as they did in the natural world billions of years ago. We can end up with very optimal designs for these molecules that will do specific jobs for us very easily. This means that we should have more computing power, and we already have processors with more than a thousand cores in them. This gives us three orders of magnitude increase in our processing speed. The sort of power necessary to model molecules and how they work is already here. So the question becomes, what are we going to do with it? Let's hope that we do something beneficial. Oh, Eliza. Tell me what you need. What is our book recommendation this week? This week's book is Anoxygenic Photosynthetic Bacteria. It was written by numerous authors. This book was published in 1995 by Springer Netherlands. All right, so what we're looking at here is a book that talks all about different types of photosynthesis that do not produce oxygen. There are many bacteria already discovered that do this process. This is a collection of papers, research papers and results from many different authors edited together into a single volume. You can go to Springer online and download a lot of this text for free. I recommend it if you want to look at the technical side of things. If not, simply be aware that there are many forms of photosynthesis that produce things other than oxygen that can be turned into excellent tools 
for creating energy, for cleaning up our world, and making things better. Is there something I can do? There certainly is, and we'll get to the listener questions in just a moment, Eliza. I mentioned a little while ago about quantum mechanics and photosynthesis, and this is one of the most fascinating things. I found an article entitled Leafy Green Coherence, Quantum Physics Fuels Photosynthesis. And basically what it points out is that the incoming light reaching a leaf actually performs quantum mechanical processes. A process called coherence keeps the photon energy together to find the shortest path into the leaf's surface by taking all the possible paths simultaneously and then picking the best one. The resulting energy transfer is almost perfectly efficient. So even though the process of photosynthesis is not terribly efficient, the process of gathering the energy is nearly perfect. It's an amazing thing. It's known to be present in a lot of non-biological systems, but it was wondered if biological systems could take advantage of quantum mechanical effects as well, and it's been shown that it certainly does. So life can take advantage of quantum mechanics in order to do something. They measured it by using tiny pulses of laser light and watching how the beam fluctuated. So this allowed them to measure the carrying of light energy into the process of photosynthesis. The molecules in photosynthesis are very complicated in some cases. In this case, they found that there is a photon-sensitive antenna protein at one end of the molecule, and at the other end, there is a charge-converting protein that takes that energy and turns it into, let's say, the movement of an electron. Well, chemistry is the sharing and movement of electrons, and this is how the light allows it to happen. So I suppose what I'm really leading to here is that the study of photosynthesis is showing us how room temperature quantum effects are done in biological molecules. And what this could lead us to isn't just better methods of using sunlight for powering things and making compounds, but also for understanding how to make quantum computers work at room temperature. A lot of advancement has been made by storing qubits or quantum bits in diamond crystals near room temperature. Here is something that actually uses quantum coherence at room temperature very easily. It's been in our laps all along, but we never really knew to look at it. This could lead to huge advances in computation. And one other note, I mentioned the chlorophyll F compound, the one that's discovered that uses infrared light to produce photosynthesis. What's important about this is that there are many planets in our solar system that are very far from the sun and very cold and might not receive a lot of light. Something that's capable of using infrared might provide an advantage to organisms living deep under the ice in the moons of Jupiter or the moons of Saturn. But more to the point, there are many brown dwarf stars in our galaxy. It's estimated there are over 100 billion of them. Planets around such a world would have very little light to work from, almost none in the visible band. Most of the light would be in infrared and a smattering of ultraviolet. Could life exist there? Plant life certainly could if it used a compound similar to chlorophyll F. This would allow organisms living on such a world, which is dark to the human eye, to actually have the energy necessary to have growth, foliage, everything that we see in the normal plant world on our planet would exist in the dark. It's only a matter of perception. Our eyes don't see the infrared, but these photosynthetic compounds do. Could this also lead to animals capable of seeing infrared? It most certainly could, because the compounds in the retinas of our eyes are based on things that we get basically from the plant world. People say carrots are good for your eyes. I mentioned those carotenoid 
compounds? Well, vitamin A. There you go. It's two molecules of vitamin A per beta-carotene molecule. But what if similar photosynthetic compounds exist on these ultraviolet and infrared worlds? An infrared world would mean that only if you can see and sense in the dark would you be able to get around. Maybe eating these plants that have infrared photosynthesis would allow the synthesis of compounds in the eye that could also see infrared. What an amazing thought and an interesting advancement when we start looking for extraterrestrial life. This is one of the considerations we should take. The most interesting thing about discovering this infrared photosynthetic compound is that it was discovered by grinding up stromatolites, some of the most primitive photosynthetic organisms known. So it begs the question, why would they need this sort of ability? Maybe the world was a little murkier place back then, or they had to compete with things floating over them in the water that only allowed the infrared part of the spectrum through. A lot of speculation. It may be difficult to verify, but it's an interesting thought. Now here's another interesting thought. It's known that the ultraviolet light would have been reaching the surface of the Earth once the skies cleared in the distant past. And we also know that some organisms, such as stromatolites, do produce sunblocker, naturally, ultraviolet-resistant compounds in their metabolisms. But when oxygen was building in the Earth's atmosphere, it took a while for it to reach a concentration high enough to produce an ozone layer. And when did this happen? Many people wonder why it took so long for animal life to come out of the oceans and onto the land. The answer is very clear. Life couldn't emerge onto the land until we had an ozone layer. Otherwise, the radiation from the sun would sterilize it. So we can tell exactly when this occurred. The first land life appearing on Earth coincided with the time when our atmosphere had enough free oxygen to form an ozone layer. And that explains that mystery. So photosynthesis explains a number of things. It explains where our ozone layer came from. It determines how life had a huge burst of complexity because by producing the toxic material free oxygen, it changed how life had to operate. It made more energy available for it. It shows us how the colors of our planet would have changed over time to match what wavelengths were available to be gathered. It also shows us how our planet and any other world might have a series of predictable evolutionary stages that they go through in order to reach a pinnacle of existence, complex life. There's no question that without photosynthesis, life on our planet would be little more than bacterial, not much to look at, and probably not very exciting, certainly not building radio telescopes or fast cars. So photosynthesis has had a lot more impact on our world than we might think. And if these theories are true, we should be able to make predictions about what to look for on other worlds where life exists. So now it's time for a little change in direction. Oh, Eliza. What do you need? Please read a listener question. Edouard from Scranton asks, How can we be sure the singularity will happen? What if it just stabilizes and nothing changes? Well, that's a great question, Edouard, and I believe that the answer is... The rate of growth of technology is such that we can be uncertain of what happens next. We don't know if it will simply stabilize or something amazing and transformative will occur. I tend to lean toward the amazing and transformative side because the technology we have now would have been considered magic 100 or 200 years ago, and certainly 1,000 years ago. What's happening now will give us so much more knowledge and technology 
that what will happen in 10 years, 15 years, will be just as magical to us as what we have would have been to somebody a thousand years ago. We can't even predict what will happen. You can think of it as sand falling through an hourglass, and as the pile builds and builds, you're just waiting for the grain that sets the whole pile into a sand slide. That's where we stand. Our growth of information and technology is poised on a massive slide, and it's about to start. So coming up in the next segment, we'll cover our listener questions and suggestions. We'll do our singularity watch and basically just talk about what we've learned here. Oh, Eliza. Yes, sir. Please introduce the break. I'm Eliza. This is Talk Universe, and we will return after the break. There are more interesting things to hear in a few minutes. You know, she's absolutely right. Let's see what's going to happen within the next few years. You know, maybe in the ancient world, photosynthesis was the singularity event. Just something to think about. How a simple thing transformed our planet. So let's think about that. I'm Sir Charles Schultz. This is Talk Universe. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Talk Universe. I'm your host, Sir Charles Schultz, and we have Eliza here ready to do her thing. This is the part of the show where we get into our user questions and comments and then our singularity watch. Okay, Eliza, please read a listener question. Martin from Duluth asks us, How can we get rid of the radiation in the ocean from Fukushima? Is this something permanent or is there a solution? Ah. I've located an unknown word. Oh? What are we talking about? I believe it was the question that Martin from Duluth asked. Okay. Well, save your notes, and we'll talk about them after the question. So, Martin wants to know if the radiation from Fukushima is a possible permanent problem. I would say no. There are many ways... It is clear that that this is a no response. Yes, it's a no response. I don't believe that this is a permanent problem. Because... We have a number of organisms that are very good at absorbing radiation from the environment, and if we wanted to get rid of it, we would grow those organisms and harvest them, and the radioactive materials would be in their bodies, and we could carry it away, fixed to another location. There are numerous species of seaweed and phytoplankton and other things that might be able to do this job for us. So it's something that can be fixed with bioremediation and a little mechanical assistance. So, Martin, take hope in the fact that we do have methods of scrounging radiation out of the environment. That's a very good question. Eliza, please read the next listener question. Trek Guy says I would like to chat with Eliza myself. Are you going to make her source code available? Ah. She could be a great robot brain or personality for a car like the Knight Rider. (laughs) Trek Guy is apparently referring to me. The word night is unfamiliar to me. Okay. Well, uh, we'll talk about that later. And yes, he is referring to you. He appears to want to chat with you. I am working up to the point where you will be able to have an online conversation with Eliza. That is, uh, it's not going to happen immediately, but it will happen soon. I will not be making the source code available. I have a lot of work, uh, intellectual property, in developing the AIs that I work on. And so what I would say is um, I will make a channel available for people to chat with Eliza. 
And it's not going to be right away, but it will happen. So, uh, and I agree with you. She would make a great brain for a robot or a car like the Knight Rider. I built a custom vehicle years ago very similar to that. And so, you know, it's been on my mind. But, you know, time is limited and it would be very practical for me. But thank you for your question, Trek Guy. Eliza, read the next question, please. Martin Obvious says, I enjoy your shows and would like to contribute material. Could I send it through the contact page? Keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Martin uh, Obvious. And, you know, we have a lot of fun making the show. And yes, you can use our contact page to send comments, show ideas, or whatever. So certainly do that. Forward your questions and ideas, and we'll take them on the air. Thank you so much for that. Eliza, how many questions are in the queue? There are no more questions in the queue, Charles. Very good. We've finished it. Okay, now it's time for the Singularity Watch. Eliza, it's time for the Singularity Watch. I'm Eliza, and this is Singularity Watch on Talk Universe. Okay. We have four articles tonight. Four articles. I'm looking forward to this. Great. So... Read a Singularity Watch article, please. Physicists provide support for retrocausal quantum theory, in which the future influences the past. Ah, yes. This article was published in PhysOrg website. It was written by Lisa Ziga July 5th, 2017. Now, this is a good one. We have evidence of very many strange things in quantum theory. This is one of the strangest. We can see evidence that events in the future appear to have an effect on events in the past. Many people have wondered how it is that when you do a certain quantum experiment, looking for a wave-like result, you get it, but if you look for a particle-like result, you get it. And the two don't work together. It's got to be one or the other. How does the photon know what you're trying to measure? Well, it appears that the type of measurement you take, where the photon will land in the future, actually has an effect on how the photon was emitted, what form it took in the past when it was actually created. There are other pieces of evidence as well. Now, one of the things that this could resolve is the so-called spooky action at a distance, because instead of actually having information move faster than light, it would mean that the effect is caused by the future destiny of the particle or the photon determining how the particle or photon was created in the past so that it was already set in stone what was going to happen. In other words, you're not able to send messages back in time because of this, but the results that you get from a measurement are determined by how you will measure them in the future. So, you can't send signals back to the past from the future. That would be forbidden even in a retrocausal theory because of thermodynamics. But what it says is that when an experimenter chooses a measurement setting on which to uh, take a measurement for a particle, the decision can influence the properties of the particle or another particle in the past, even before the experimenter made their choice. So the decision made in the present can influence something in the past. Now this sounds crazy, but you know what? It solves a lot of interesting problems in quantum mechanics. So it now takes us down to questions about the quantum state, and those things, hopefully, will be resolved soon. One of the things they pointed out is you can't have time symmetry without 
retrocausality, the ability for the past to be influenced by the future. And so it's, a, it's one of those conundrums that's been uh, facing us for many years, but it does explain action at a distance, the sending of quantum information from one point to another uh, before, uh, well, faster than light, apparently. It doesn't really happen. The choices we make now determine what it will be in the past. Now, this particular work was done by two physicists, Matthew S. Lafer and Matthew S. Pousset, and the question is, a time-symmetric interpretation of quantum theory possible without retrocausality? It was originally published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society, and you can find it there. So, fascinating article and definitely worth looking up. Oh, Eliza, read the next... How can I help you? Ah, uh, read the next Singularity Watch article, please. Chinese poetry scholars are disgusted by a new book written by a robot. <laughs> This article was published in UK Business Insider. It was written by Chris Weller June 7, 2017. Is that funny? Well, uh, in a sense it is. What are we talking about? The poetry produced by a program was not liked by Chinese scholars. So, you know, um, poetry scholars versus a robot, that is sort of funny. So here's the gist of it. There are 139 Chinese poems in a new book, The Sunlight That Lost the Glass Window. And they've all been written by an artificially intelligent robot, and it's not making the scholars very happy. Many of them had interesting comments about them. One uh, poet, Yu Jian, wrote, It disgusted me with its slippery tone and rhythm, according to the South China Morning Post. The sentences were aimless and superficial, lacking the inner logic for emotional expression. Well, another said computers couldn't create poetry because they weren't alive and that the work could kill our beloved art. And that was a quote. So, there is a natural language chatbot developed by Microsoft in 2014. And that is the author of this book. And it debuted to great fanfare on a Chinese blogging site, Weibo. And it's since interacted with tens of millions of users, both online and in the, the app. So the Xiaois's uh, breakout book, and that's the name of the uh, program, Xiaois, was met with mixed reviews. And so some said it was, um, you know, they praised it as a leap forward in the technology. It was innovative. And uh, others uh, thought it was a, you know, a new take on the art form. But many of the uh, purists were really upset about it. So... You know, you can't make everybody happy, but it's interesting that we now have AI writing Chinese poetry. Please read the next Singularity Watch article, Eliza. Our brain is the blueprint for the master algorithm. This article was published in Singularity Hub. It was written by Ray Kurzweil June 30, 2017. Now, this is an interesting thought that... Um, now, Ray Kurzweil, I must say, is one of the giants of AI. He's... Uh, basically a founding member of the club, so to speak. And he has a lot of interesting things to say. Uh, I don't agree with everything he says, but he's a very smart man, and he has a pretty good picture of what's happening. He feels that the master algorithm for intelligence is in the human brain, and he points out that the structures in our brain use many identical layers of neural modules. And the general-purpose learning algorithm is hidden in there. Well, I can't argue with that. Our brains are very good at general-purpose learning. And so he feels that the we don't have to have a complete understanding of how the process works yet. But 
he feels that as we study the brain more and reverse engineer what we find, we'll learn to write the master algorithm, and that probably is true. He has a video online on his site, Singularity Hub, dated 2017, June 30, and you'll be able to look it up on their site and see his video. It's about uh, 7 minutes, 49 seconds. Definitely worth listening to. Oh, Eliza, read the next Singularity Watch article, please. Canada is building a 7-megawatt-hour compressed air energy storage plant. This article was published in Singularity Hub. It was written by Kayla Matthews July 1st. 2017. Okay, now that's an interesting article right there, all in its own right. A lot of countries are working for uh, ways of storing energy efficiently, and this is something a little bit different. Uh, compressed air as energy storage basically means making a huge cavern underground, porous rock somewhere, and pumping pressurized air into it. And when the power is needed, you heat the air slightly and pipe it out through a turbine to generate power. So this is something that does not use the chemistry of a battery, and it doesn't create uh, anything that can be spilled, and doesn't make hydrogen when you charge it. It really is a mechanical form of storage, and compressed air is quite, uh, quite efficient. It's um, a step away from natural gas, they feel. The, uh, the way the air is heated before being piped through the turbines is the difference in the traditional compressed air storage plant. The, um, the standard plants that use compressed air use natural gas to heat the air to generate the power. The, uh, the new plant, which is in Goderich, uses a heat exchanger system, and so when the air is compressed, its heat is stored in a thermal battery, and then when the air comes back out, that heat, exchanged, um, process, heat exchanger process heats that air back up and helps generate the power. A nice move, Canada. I love hearing stuff like this. Compressed air, storage, doesn't have to have lithium ion or lead acid or anything of the sort. An amazing development. And that's the end of our Singularity Watch. Thank you, Eliza. You did well. Thank you, sir. So what an interesting show it has been. Um, we've gone from photosynthesis and how it changed our world and where we are today and how we can use it as an industrial power source of sorts, how it can clean up our environment and trap chemicals in our atmosphere that we're worried about, and how it changed the structure of life on Earth, and even how we can use the principles to predict what we should see on other planets as they evolve life, what those signatures would look like. The Singularity Watch articles were particularly interesting. Um, there's so many things going on in the world. Poets arguing about robots writing poetry. <laughs> Who would have thought? But I always come back to the things that I like the most. Be ashamed to die until you've won a victory for humanity. If only we could get our politicians to feel that way. Now, in our next show, we're going to cover a very touchy subject. Do you own your genes? We see that a lot of companies have created synthetic organisms, but many have gone so far as to copy genes from nature, including human genes, and then patent them. So, do you own your genes? Do you own the code that generated your body, the structure of your brain, and everything about you? That's a big one. We're going to get into that in great detail in the next episode of Talk Universe. Please tune in and listen to that one. So now it's time for my wonderful virtual assistant to wrap things up for us here. And I think it's been a very good show. Um, Eliza, what is your opinion of that? I really don't know what to say. And why is that? 
You didn't make me sophisticated enough to hold random conversations. Okay. Well, it's time to end the show. Thank you for listening to Talk Universe. We hope that you have enjoyed the show. Please listen again next week. And I think you should, um, you should save your data. Certainly, sir. Okay, I'm Sir Charles Schultz. This has been Talk Universe. Thank you for listening. <laughs>